So, hey, um, I'm going to invite you to pray right now, and we're going to turn our attention to God's word this morning. Father, we bow before you. We thank you that you're not a silent God. You speak to us, but you speak in a way that's sometimes unusual to us. You speak through history. You speak through real live people uh, who lived a long time ago and the story of their lives and what you did with them and how you walked beside them and guided them and used them and changed their lives. We're reading all that in the book of Acts this year, and we pray that, uh, that you'll be speaking your word in a fresh way to our lives today. Because what you did a long time ago is, is pretty much what you do now. Because you're the God who in Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. You're God who's faithful and consistent and steady and reliable. And uh, we want to get to know you better even this morning. So open our minds and open our hearts and open your word and speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, right now, in the, the story of God's people, we are exploring, uh, in, a, in a way we're really going to be focused on one man in particular for the next, the second half of the book of Acts, and for this morning in particular, and that man was a guy we talked about a couple weeks ago in a distinct way, the radical change in his life when he went from being a very committed Jewish person very committed to God and to God's law and to challenging and holding God's people accountable to remain faithful to what God had said to them through his law way back when. He was zealous for that. And when he was zealous for that, he not only was committed to living that out in his own life, but he wanted to see other people do it too. And if they weren't, he was willing to go the second mile. He would pressure them. And when he saw a group of Jewish people Responding to Jesus, some teacher, some healer, some guy who had gotten a lot of attention during his life on earth, but who had ultimately been rejected by God's people and condemned by God's people and hung up on a tree on a cross to die in the most degrading way possible, even though he made claims to be the Messiah. When he saw people who were Jewish people starting to follow a man who hung on something like that, He not only wanted no part of it, he not only wanted to speak out against it, but he devoted his life to trying to stop it, to do whatever it took to stop it, even to the point of violence, even to the point of grabbing people and dragging them off to jail, even to the point of murder. Paul was willing to do anything because he was so committed to that. And in one moment, his life changed. We even have that almost cliche of a Damascus Road experience where someone's literally moving in one direction in their life and something happens and they are reorientated just like that. And that's what happened to Saul, who quickly became known as Paul because God had changed his life. He was looking for the God of Israel. He was drawing close to the God of Israel and seeking to serve his purpose in his time. And as he was seeking to look at the God of Israel, he saw a face he didn't expect to see, and it was the face of Jesus. And that changed everything for him. He is alive. He is God's man. He is the Messiah. And Paul spent days and weeks and months and years exploring that and putting those pieces together the Hebrew Bible as he knew it, God's word as he knew it through Abraham and Moses and the prophets with Jesus and his story 
and what he did and what happened to him and what God did to him when he raised him from the death from death he put those pieces together and then he started sharing that that news and remember that drive remember that that zeal to to challenge God's people and to hold them accountable and to stop them from doing anything wrong all that zeal got got changed and channeled in a new direction he was no longer making people do anything that's not really the Jesus way but he took all that passion and all that commitment and all that energy and drive and he followed Jesus and Jesus propelled him out Jesus sent him forth the beginning of, of the book right after the book of Acts, it's Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. He writes about his life just a little bit. Let me read a couple of words. He says, writing to these Roman Christians, he doesn't know them. He hasn't been there before, but he's writing them, looking forward to meeting them and being with them. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve In my spirit, in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I am obligated, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. All that drive, all that focus, all that commitment, are you that committed? I don't know if I know a person like Paul. Paul was astounding in his commitment, but what changed everything was the orientation of that commitment to what he thought was God's will and God's way and God's word and what he came to understand when he actually met Jesus. And, and, and most radically of all for him was this realization that what God wanted to do in the human story on planet earth through Jesus wasn't just for a small group of people. It was something that God wanted to offer to everyone. I mean, I wish I could remember all the lyrics to the songs we started our worship with this morning. But, but uh, one of the lines that just sticks with me is, Come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. How do we know the Father's arms are open wide? How do we know that the God of Jesus Christ is a God whose arms are open wide for all people? Because until now... It was always this little religion for this, this little God and this little land. And we live in a world today where we don't exactly believe that. Actually, the official view of faith in our world today is you can believe whatever you want. Actually, bottom line, we don't say this out loud, but it doesn't matter. We probably don't believe any of them, but maybe they're all true. The one thing that's not acceptable is the idea that one message could actually be for all people. But that's what Paul came to realize. That the God who chose Abraham, the God who worked through the Jewish nation, the God who who chose this people and blessed them and guided them out of Egypt into a promised land and made promises to them, that that God's 
plan through that people and through Jesus in particular was to let people know that the Father's arms are open wide and the invitation is to anyone and everyone. Wow. Now I want you to explore with me the story of, um, Pastor Neil mentioned this a few moments ago, what we call the first missionary journey of Paul. And we're going to read that story in Acts chapter 13. Um, we're settled in a town called Antioch here, where Jesus has been, or where Paul has been for some time. And it is a community of people who are starting to get that idea and starting to get that message, and they're starting to pay attention to people in their own community who are like them, but also people who aren't like them, to Jews and sharing that message with them. But increasingly, the Christians in Antioch are not Jewish Christians, they're Gentile Christians. And the word is getting out, and suddenly they get a sense they should send some people to a different location. Because this message and this good news about a father whose arms are open wide has to be communicated elsewhere. Because how will people know if they don't hear? And how will they hear if there's not someone to talk about it? And so that's what, that's what happens. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to read a little. You're going to stand for just a little bit. You're going to survive. All right. We're going to read the beginning of um, Acts 13, and we're going to pick it up with verse 13. So, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menain, who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And so after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Get the picture? A worship time, some people are praying together, particularly the leaders of this church. As they gather for worship in a small group and a larger group, they get the sense from God that they are a people who are going to send somebody out. It had never really happened that way before. Jesus had sent his apostles out, but churches hadn't done that until Antioch. And here they take Barnabas and Saul and they say, the Holy Spirit wants you to go forth. You are, are God sending you, but we're sending you too. And so they head off. They go to Cyprus and some other communities. And then verse 13, we'll pick up. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia. You all know where that is, right? Where John left them to return to Jerusalem. And from Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch, a different Antioch. There were so many Antiochs in this time. Antiochus, so many places have been named for him, and, and we start with one Antioch, and we go to another one in the same chapter here. From Pergam, they went on to Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down, and after the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites, and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. And after removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. 
he will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for. But there is one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it's written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he'll never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And so it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free From every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. I'm going to leave it there. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, this morning, we are exploring the message of a missionary, and that's what we meet in this chapter. What is it? What is it that that Paul wants to talk about? What can't he keep his mouth shut about? Why does he want to talk about God and God's uh, words in the Old Testament? Why does he want to talk about Jesus? And it is because he believes that the message he bears is of relevance to every human being. Every human being. And that's as real this morning as it was 2,000 years ago. So here's the proposal. Here's the idea. Here's what Paul would say if he was here this morning. Here's what I'm saying to you right now, that what we're looking at is important for you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you think when you walk in here this morning. I don't care if you feel like you are really close to God or you are so distant you're not sure what you think of him, make of him, or if you even believe in him. What Paul was talking about is relevant to all of us. And there's a couple of things we can glean from his message. And the first is just this, that God is in charge. God's in charge. It comes out clearly in the way he begins his message. So verse 16, it says, Paul stood up, motioned with his hands like I'm doing right now. And he said, fellow Israelites, he knows who he's talking to, fellow Israelites and 
you Gentiles who worship God. So a distinct community of Gentile people would have hung out near a synagogue. That's who's there. He says, listen to me. The God of the people Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct. He overthrew nations. He gave them a land. And then he gave them judges. And then he gave them a king when they asked for one. And then he gave them another king with a promise. If you read and you listen to what Paul's saying, you get the sense that for all that goes on around the world, for all that goes on in the the life story of a nation or of an individual, the primary actor is God. God's in charge. In the language of Revelation chapter 4, there is a throne and there's someone on the throne. There is, in the language of the White House, a control room. And there is a place where God is present, watching over. He is in charge, and he is working. He's in the driver's seat. And that's not always obvious. It's not always obvious in our lives. It's not always obvious in our world. It surely is not obvious to every human being who's ever lived. Um, For a good number of years now, almost 23 years, I've traveled relatively frequently to vacation in Idaho, in a town called Ketchum, Idaho, up in the middle of the mountains, a pretty small population, except on certain ski weekends and certain times during the summer, summertime. Remember summertime? Yeah. The <laughs> uh, first time I went, uh, Susan and I were um, not yet married. She was introducing me to this place her family loved so much, and I didn't know much about Ketchum, but he quickly found out that, that one man lived there who was well-known way back when. His life ended just about the time I was born, I believe, but his books live on. His name was Ernest Hemingway, uh, a larger-than-life character almost in life. And he deposited all these stories and all these books, and he was a big figure. And he loved to go out to Idaho to go hunting. But the truth was that um, Ernest Hemingway didn't really thrive in life all that much in spite of what it appeared to be, in spite of... Uh, of how it looked. This is what he said one time about life. Life is a dirty trick. It's a journey from nothingness to nothingness. What if you really thought that? Life is a dirty trick. It's a journey from nothingness to nothingness. Um, We actually drove by the Hemingway home one day, and then we went to the cemetery in town, and there was a large marble slab on the ground, and some people, maybe with a sick sense of humor, I don't know, had left those little, uh, those tiny little uh, liquor bottles, those, those, those little bottles you might get on a plane or something, and they were just sitting there on his grave marker. And he ended up in there when he took one of those shotguns that he went hunting with and he turned it on himself and he blew his head off. Maybe that's not so irrational if you believe that life is just a dirty trick that goes from nothingness to nothingness. I don't know what you do. But what I wanted to tell you this morning 
is that the God that Paul talked about and the message he shared with a group of people who probably already believed this, but he really wanted them to get it and to, to get it deep inside is that God is and God is real and we don't exist by accident and we didn't come from nothing. God's in charge and he's at work and he's even at work in your life. And there may be times when what's going on in your life really doesn't make all that much sense. But nonetheless, God is present and at work. Back in the 1800s in Scotland, there was a man named George Matheson. He was a, a promising young man. He was bright. He was intelligent. He was studying at a major university. He, he, was, he was just recognized for what was coming. He was engaged to get married. And it was during that engagement that this young man was suddenly hospitalized. And something was wrong. And it was determined that he had a particular kind of degenerative disease in his eyes and that very rapidly he would go blind. And uh, as that was happening, unfolding, his fiancée came and visited him and talked with him. And then one day she just said to him, I don't want to be married to a blind man. And she walked away. And it was very hard for George. It was years later that he was at his sister's wedding. And one night, a man who wrote a lot of things and worked really hard on what he wrote, he said later, these words actually just came to me. And people to this day sing a song based on what he wrote. He said, oh love, you, know, you might know the song, oh love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Another verse goes like this. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain. And feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. I want you to think about that phrase for a moment. I trace the rainbow through the rain. When do we see rainbows? Sometimes during and sometimes right after the rain, the storm, when everything's not beautiful and the sun's not shining and we're not standing outside because of the beauty of the moment. When we're huddled somewhere, when we're hiding out and suddenly we're able to trace the rainbow through the rain. Reminds me of Noah in the midst of judgment and God's sign of a rainbow that was a promise of his care for humanity. A person who believes that God is in charge, that God is sovereign, is a person who can see God's hand in many places, but even when she or he can't, can trace the rainbow through the rain. Never forget that God's in charge. Now, one step that helps us understand that even more is that God is a God who promises. He makes promises and he keeps them. And I want you to understand that the power of promise for a moment in human life. Lewis Smedes, who many, many years ago taught at Calvin College, wrote this some time ago. He said, somewhere a father is telling himself, I wish my daughter would pack up, leave home, and never come back. God knows she's driven us crazy. 
But he remembers a promise he made when she was baptized. And he sticks with her in hurting love. Somewhere a woman is telling herself, I want to get out of this marriage and start over with someone who really loves me. God knows the clod I married has given me reason for cashing him in. But she remembers a promise she made when she married him. And she sticks with him in hopeful love. Somewhere a minister is telling himself, I want to chuck this job and get into something with a better payoff. God knows my congregation has given me second degree burnout. I didn't write those words. I'm just quoting. (laughs) But he remembers the promise he made when he was ordained and he sticks with the church in pastoral love. Some people still make promises and keep those they make. And when they do, they help make life around them more stably human. Promise-keeping is a powerful means of grace in a time when people hardly depend on each other to remember and to live by their word. Do you know where promises and promise-keeping comes from? It comes from the God we meet in Abraham and the God we meet in Moses and the God we meet in the story of Israel and ultimately the God we meet in Jesus. That God is a God who makes promises, but he doesn't speak them idly, he keeps them. And as Paul got up before this group of people, he traced the story, not just the rainbow through the rain of tough times, but he traced the story of God's actions, and God's actions were tied with promises. So when he gave them what they wanted, he gave them a king. You really want a king? I'll give you a king. And they gave him Saul, and it wasn't such good times. But then God found a man after his own heart, and God gave the king David to his people. And he made a promise to David. He said, David, I love you, and I've chosen you, and I've blessed my people through you, and you will have a son, and his kingdom will never end. And Paul said, you all know that promise. You've heard that story many times in your life, and what I want you to know today is the God who made a promise almost a thousand years ago to David, the king, is a God who's kept that promise, and he's kept that promise in Jesus. Sometimes that promise is all we have to go on, that God has made a promise to us. It's a promise that says, I will be with you wherever you are. I will never leave you or forget about you or forsake you. I will not turn my back on you. I promise that I will be your God And you will be my people. And I am making that promise real in Jesus Christ. How often in life do you know what it feels like to be alone? Even if you're surrounded by people. Do you know what it means to be alone in a family? Do you know what it means to be alone at a school? Do you know what it means and and feels like to be alone in a community? My guess is all of us know what that feels like. The time when we're not sure anybody else is on our side and we're not sure we're really on anybody else's side. The time when everything seems to be failing us and nothing is sure or solid in our lives. And God says to us, I'm your God. I want you to be my person. But I make a promise to you that no matter where you go or what you experience, I'm the God will be with you always. And when he sent his son, isn't it awesome that he gave him that name through Isaiah, Emmanuel, 
God with us. Never before in any other imagination of any other cultural people had anybody imagined a God who would be with his people so much that he would become one of them and live their very lives and live right in the midst of the creation he had made. But that's what we meet in Jesus. Final thing I want you to see this morning in the message that Paul had to give and he had to let his people on was this. That in Jesus, there is good news. And that good news is tied to something that can happen through Christ that can happen no other way. And um, I'm going to pick up these words in verse 32 and following. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. Maybe we'll throw those words back up. He says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he's fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. By raising him up as someone to pay attention to, but by raising him up from the dead. And then Paul quotes three times the second psalm. He he says, you are my son, today I've become your father. And Paul says, God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. He gives him a, a promise, I will give you holy and sure blessings promised to David. And these words from Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see decay. Those words were David's words, and God speaking to David. And Paul quotes them. God said to David, you will not let your holy one see decay. But friends, the truth is, we know where David's buried. David decayed a long time ago. He doesn't even smell bad anymore. It's been so many years. There's no stink there. He's totally decayed. Those words to David were a promise through David to somebody else. They were a promise to Jesus. And the promise was this, that when you obey me and you follow me and you die, I will not leave you dead. I will bring you back to life. That had never happened anywhere before because, as Ernest Hemingway understood it, nothingness to nothingness, life to death, But with Jesus, death was finally conquered. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. He was talking to Jewish people, and he was saying to them this, and to the God-fearers close by, being Jewish isn't enough. And I want you to think about the great gift God gave you, a way of life, a good way of life, a way of guidelines. This is how I want you to live, and this is how I want you to talk, and this is how I want you to respond, and this is how I want, I want your community to look like. But none of you have been able to live it. None of you have been able to fulfill that promise. None of you have been able to live up to that benchmark. None of you. It won't save you. It won't forgive you. The other day I was out for a little bit of a walk. of praying a little bit. And I think the Lord was allowing me to, to stew for a little bit in my own weakness. My own inadequacy. My own sin. God doesn't remember my sin. But I do. How about you? God says he doesn't remember the ways I'll fall short because he forgives them and he wipes them clean. But do you know what? I'm not fully able to forget. Every once in a while, they're raised up. Sometimes when I feel impatient with somebody else, sometimes when I am troubled by somebody else's life, sometimes when I see somebody else falling short, you know what the Lord brings up in my memory? Oh yeah, 
That's me too. That's me too. I've never been able to live it out. But through Jesus, the sins are wiped away. Forgiveness. The deficit, the failure, the marks against it, they are all taken and they don't exist there anymore. Forgiven. A little over a year ago, I met Craig when we were exploring Alpha for the first time. Craig's the director of Alpha in the United States. He lives out in Denver. He not only directs this ministry that we're now a part of, that encompasses many, many churches, but he's a volunteer at his local church, and so he's involved in Alpha in his local church. A couple of years ago, a guy came to Alpha at their church. Not a Christian guy. Matt was his name. Matt was a very successful guy, an intense guy, a very intellectually uh, committed guy. He'd started six businesses, and he'd succeeded at every single one of them. He made a lot of money. Something had happened really weird. He and his wife were in Thailand sometime around 2004, I think it was, and they were just vacationing there at the time of, do you remember, a tsunami. And almost by a fluke, somehow or another, they survived the experience. They were in the water for hours and hours and hours. And while Matt was in the water, he cried out, uh, not religious guy at all, cried out, God, you know the Hail Mary pass? Okay, God, if you save me, I will commit my life to you. Well, 10 hours later, he and his wife both were rescued, and they survived. And do you know what? He didn't respond to the prayer he'd prayed. He walked away from it. Until one day, somebody invited him to come to Alpha, and he, he came to class that first day. He was loaded for bear. He was ready to argue. He was just, he knew all of his problems with Jesus and the Christian faith, and he wanted to talk about it. But he was welcome there, and he said, I'm here because I'm, I prayed that prayer in the ocean one day long ago, and maybe, I don't know if God exists, but I survived. I don't know how I survived, so I'm here. And week after week, he still brought his objections, and the leader would say, Matt, thank you, that's, that's a very interesting observation. Anybody else have thoughts? And, and, and his words were received and heard. He went away on a retreat over a weekend, And in the course of that time, Craig talked to Matt, and Craig said, you know, we've been talking about Revelation 3.20, Jesus knocking at the door of your heart. Anyone opens that door, Jesus said, I will come in to you, and I will eat with you, and I will be with you. Matt, you've never touched that door. You've never reached out and touched that. You've never opened that door. Is it time for you to open that door? And Matt said yes. And he prayed a prayer. And he just said, Jesus, I've been a skeptic, but I don't know what my life's about. I've been so successful. I have so much money, but my life means nothing. Will you be my Savior and my Lord? He prayed that. Like one minute later, he's he's saying, I feel like there's a new, I feel like I can breathe. I've never felt like this way before. Lots of people said no to Paul's message, but lots of people like Matt said yes. The people say yes, find out that God is in charge, that he makes promises, he keeps, and that he forgives them. And with the Father's arms open wide, 
welcomes them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, grateful that though you threw Paul off at first because you hung on that tree, there was a reason you were there. You gave your life in death so that we would not have to. And you were raised to life so that we could know a God who is Father with open arms. I pray that you will strengthen those of us who who know that and believe it already. I pray that you will speak to the lives of those who aren't touching the door that only they can open to welcome you in. And I pray that there will be some who say, Jesus, I need you for what I can't get anywhere else. I don't want nothing to this, to nothingness. I want a father's open arms and I want a son's forgiveness. Help us. In your name, Jesus, we pray.